Well, as Mark mentioned, we just have two Sundays left in the summer series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And then on August 14th, Pastor Mark's going to begin a much-anticipated series in the book of Revelation. In this book of Ecclesiastes, the preacher, whom we think was Solomon, is making observations about what he calls life under the sun. Life from those first moments when we're born, when the light dawns, and then as the sun goes across the horizon and finally at dusk begins to set, and eventually, as we'll see in chapter 12, verse 6, the silver cord is broken and the lights go out. What all happens to us in this life under the sun? Last week, we learned that life under the sun will be easier for us if we adopt four wise perspectives. And this week, we're going to see from chapters 10 and 11 that life will be more productive for us if we adopt three wise practices. Things we understand will allow us to live life with a greater sense of peace, and things we do will allow us to live life with a greater sense of fulfillment. After all, we only have one life to live. So Solomon's point is maximize it. Do everything you can to eliminate the seeming meaninglessness, futility, and uselessness of our few short days on this earth under the sun. So today we're going to look at three practices of wisdom that give life significance. But first, we have some unfinished business from last week. If you'll recall, the preacher was quite long-winded last week. He didn't get to his fourth point, and so he dumped it off on me this week. So today we're going to start with point number four. And I don't know if you remember our points. Our kids did a great job last week of helping us learn some motions to remember the points. So if you're up for this, you don't have to stand, but... Remember, life gives us perspective on four things. So go ahead and do this with me. Life gives us perspective on respecting our leaders. Secondly, life gives us perspective to know how small we are. I I love this quote from Spurgeon. The doorstep to the temple of wisdom is the knowledge of our own ignorance. Are we wise enough to know that we are not wise enough to know? The third, wisdom gives us a perspective to know, and it was fun watching the kids try to do this last week, that in the end, everything will be all right. Can you do that? Perspective to know that in the end, no matter where your life goes and how curly it is, it's not over yet, and in the very end, when Jesus comes back, he's going to make everything right. And the fourth perspective, then, is one we're going to look at today because it's in chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 11. In fact, it was in earlier parts of the book as well. And that is the funnest one of all, right? The perspective to... Can you do that with me? The perspective to... To enjoy the gifts in this present life. Wisdom appreciates its present gifts. And if you're alive today, you are better, the Bible says, than a dead lion. Chapter 9, verse 4. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. What he's saying is no matter how significant you become in life and how much you achieve and how intimidating you might become, once you die, you are done. And all you are is one great big carcass. 
Now while we are alive, what should we do? We should enjoy the life that God has given us. And so in chapter 8, verse 15, here is his answer. Here is his perspective on life under the sun. Chapter 8, verse 15, and I commend joy. That is his answer to this short life under the sun. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through all the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And then chapter 9, verse 7, go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Psalm 104, 15 says, the Lord gives wine to gladden the human heart, oil to make the face shine and bread to strengthen the human heart. God has given us all these good gifts for us to enjoy, and we honor him as the creator and the giver when we enjoy them. A few days ago, I was having lunch here at church. I had made a a little sandwich, went outside. It was a beautiful sunny day, blue sky, little breeze was blowing. I had some nine-grain bread with some mayo on it, slice of ham, slice of Munster cheese, Uh, A slice or two of tomato, some spinach leaves, and I was just sitting outside on a picnic table, and every bite was delectable. I was just doing what this verse said. The flavors that God has given us to enjoy, even in a simple picnic, are amazing. And so wherever you go for lunch today, if you eat out or if you have leftovers at home or go on a picnic, do this. Enjoy life. God's given us bread for us to enjoy life. He's given us taste buds so that getting nourishment is not just a task, but it's something that we can find pleasure in. Chapter 9, verse 8. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. White garments were used at times of celebration. So it says dress up and be happy and enjoy the life God has given you. Verse 9 of chapter 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. And you might not want to add this phrase when you're talking to your wife because it says all the days of your vain life that he's given you under the sun. What he's saying is we've just got a few years here anyway, so enjoy your lot in life. He says that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. If you're married, God has given you a spouse. And he's saying, enjoy that person that God has created. Appreciate the gifts that God has put into that person. Spend time together. And if you're single, that is your lot in life for right now. That's where God has you. And yet you are not alone. You are in the family of God. So enjoy the friendships. Get connected here at church. And enjoy the relationships that you can have in the body of Christ here. Now, this joie de vivre in chapter 9, verse 10, includes our work. Whatever your hand finds you to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. We should work hard with what God has given us to do because that is our portion under the sun. God's enjoyments are not guilty pleasures, Philip Ryken said, but godly pleasures. And one of those enjoyments is the enjoyment of working hard. Matthew Henry said he loves to have his servants sing at their work, for this proclaims him a good master. 
Chapter 10, verse 19, bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Now we know about the bread and it's made for laughter so we need to enjoy our food together. That's kind of the idea. It's a communal fellowship together that we enjoy when we eat our bread and wine gladdens life. God has given this gift and if you choose to enjoy an alcoholic beverage legally and responsibly, it can give joy that God has provided for us. And if you choose to abstain, there are other beverages that you can enjoy as well. And that's what he's saying. What God has given us, let us enjoy. And then the verse that we never expected to find in the Bible, money answers everything. <laughs> now, deep in your heart, you know that that's mostly true or false. Yeah. It's true, money buys us the things we need in life. And the things that we buy with money make us happy. And a lot of your problems today would be solved if you had more money, right? Money answers a lot of, life, of life's problems and it is a gift from God. But of course we know that money doesn't answer all of life's problems. It does not cure loneliness. It does not fix a diseased body. It does not restore a broken marriage. In fact, I've heard that some of the richest people are the most unhappy people in the world. But money is a gift from God. Chapter 11, verse 7. Light is sweet and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Youth is vibrant. Rejoice in the good days because what's going to happen? The dark days are coming. But let him remember, chapter 11, verse 8, let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Here it is in chapter 11, verse 8. The preacher is dealing with the realities of life, the honesty that hard times are coming. You may be in darkness today. Maybe you've had a prolonged illness. Maybe you've had an unemployment that you can't solve. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that's gone sour and you are living in dark days. In context, what the preacher's talking about is the dark days of old age, because he talks about this more in chapter 12. What he's saying is that these bodies will begin to wear out and the minds will begin to fade and it might even be in reverse order. But the days are coming, you young people, when it's gonna be hard to even get around. And he talks in chapter 12 about old age being like a grasshopper that drags itself along. And some mornings I wake up and I think, yeah, that's getting closer and closer. So because those days of darkness are coming, he says we should enjoy while we can the pleasures of life in our youth. Chapter 11, verse 9. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Do the things you delight in, he says, the things you were made for that give you pleasure. But remember, there are guardrails in life, and don't color outside the lines, because God is going to take into account all that you have done and judge you someday for that. So with the meaninglessness of life so plain to the preacher, his Counsel was essentially this, make the best of a bad situation and enjoy all the good gifts that God has given. 
The commendation of enjoyment cautions against too much puzzling over the incomprehensible or morally offensive facts of life. You see, we can get so tied up in trying to figure out this life that we lose the joy of life. And he's saying, just leave that stuff. You're not wise enough to know that anyway. And just enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Now, the preacher last week gave you a homework assignment. And I actually just talked to somebody who did that, and that was encouraging. Because in chapter 8, verse 15, it says, eat, drink, and be merry. That's Solomon's advice to us. But when we turn to the New Testament, Jesus gave a parable of a rich fool, not a rich wise man. And the rich fool said these exact same words. He said, eat, drink, and be merry, O soul, for you have laid up for yourselves ample, yourself ample goods. Enjoy life and live it to the full. And Jesus says, that man is a fool, and yet Solomon says, that man is the wise man. And I hope you, you struggled with that, because this is one of the beautiful things of the Bible. It, it gives us some things to hold in tension, and we can fit them all together if we work at it. And that's what systematic theology is all about. What is the New Testament perspective on this question? Should we eat, drink, and be merry? Or... Are we fools if we do? Well, remember last week we talked about the two boxes. And this isn't a perfect analogy. No analogy really is. But this was helpful for me. There's a box of the physical things in life that we can touch and see and taste. That's, the, that's our earthly reality. These things are fading away. But that box is embedded in a much larger box of eternal realities. The things of God and of his kingdom. Now, the reason that analogy isn't perfect is because these, these boxes mix. They're, they're all together. But it helps me logically to think of them in different boxes. And Solomon is talking about this small box of the physical world. If that's all we had, he would be completely right. But it is not all that we have. Jesus' point was that if you live only for this life, you are a fool. And the rich fool's fundamental error was to think that life consists in the abundance of possessions. And that's how the world thinks. That's what we're sold many times a day on TV and those annoying ads that pop up on your Facebook feed. The world is telling you all you need is more stuff inside this box and you will be happy. And that is the lie that is fooling the world because they can't see the other box. And yet, the rest of the Bible, and the New Testament specifically, tells us about the bigger box. Paul said in Ephesians 1, that God has given us, in Christ, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's the other box. He says in Colossians 3, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And he goes on in that chapter to say, set your minds on things above not on things that are on the earth. As Christians, we have a whole new world that we are living for, much bigger and better and more significant than this little box of the physical life that we enjoy. That's why David said in Psalm 4, Lord, you have made my joy greater than when their grain and new wine abound. He's saying the wicked have lots of stuff in this box, but I have even greater joy than them because I have life with you. 
It's why David said, they feast on the abundance of your house for you give them drink from your rivers of delights. He's speaking allegorically about our life with God in Christ. It's an abundant life that he gives us. We drink from this river of delights. It's why the psalmist said in Psalm 73, there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Whom have I in heaven but you? And, and there is nothing on earth I desire. So while he enjoyed this life, he didn't desire it. It didn't drive him because he had God in heaven. It's why Jesus in John 4, when the disciples brought him some lunch after a long journey and he was hot, tired, and hungry, and thirsty, wasn't all that interested in the food they brought him. And he told the disciples, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. He was busy doing the will of his father, and that was what fed his soul. It's why Jesus said, I am the living water. If anybody drinks of me, he will never be thirsty because he will have rivers of living water springing up from inside him. It's why Jesus said, I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven to give life to the world. Whoever eats of me will never be hungry again. See, the Bible tells us about this other world that needs to be our focus. It's why Paul could say, I am content whether I have everything or nothing. I don't need anything in this world because Christ is my life. It's why the Christians in Hebrews 10, 34 were commended because they joyfully, it says, accepted the plundering of their property. Why? Because they knew they had better and lasting possessions. They were not locked into this little box. They were living for eternity. And it's why the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11 were commended as well. They left everything behind because they were looking for a better and a lasting country. And my friends, if all of that just sounds like religious gobbledygook to you, you have never tasted and seen that the Lord is good. Oh, he gives us good gifts in his life, and they are wonderful, but it is so much less than what he gives us in Christ. And when we begin to appreciate the life that we have in Jesus, all of these physical blessings will pale in significance. So essentially, as New Testament Christians, we hold two things in tension, a tension that we don't see in the book of Ecclesiastes. On the one hand, God does richly provide us with everything we need, 1 Timothy 6, 17. But on the other hand, we set our minds and our hearts. We think about and we long for, not things that are on the earth, but things that are above where Christ is. So enjoy life, absolutely. But as Christians live for something more and something greater. Would you rather listen to the neighbor kid play chopsticks on the piano or listen to a Brahms concerto? Would you rather look at refrigerator drawings or the Mona Lisa? Would you rather look at Hoosier Hill or gaze at Mount Everest? Would you rather play Space Invaders or Call of Duty? Would you rather see a dam on White River or look at Victoria Falls? Would you rather eat a Big Mac or have a steak at St. Elmo's? 
You see, all of these rudimentary things, the elementary things of life are legitimate and good. But they're so elementary. God has so much richer goodness and blessing in store for us. And when we've tasted and enjoyed that flavor, we'll want more and more of it and less and less of what this world has to offer. Well, how does that play out in specifics? I mean, we have money, we have decisions we have to make, don't we, financially? I think the answer is the biblical concept of stewardship. God has given you money, yes, partly so that you can enjoy life, but along with that, he's given you money so that you will be a blessing to others. He's given you a responsibility to care for the poor and the needy and the widow. He's given you a responsibility to support your church He's given you a responsibility to make sure that the gospel spreads all around the world. And so we we need to somehow keep these things in balance. Yes, enjoy what God has given you. But because your life is truly hidden with Christ in God, you can release your resources and invest in the life to come. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. So the New Testament perspective is this. Enjoy life responsibly, but live for something more. Set your hearts and minds on things above. Well, now we come to our sermon for today, and we have 13 minutes left. So I hope the preacher next week's ready to handle my last point. We're going to knock off two of them very quickly, but the first, now we're, we've seen four perspectives that help us live in this life under the sun with a greater sense of peace. And now three activities, three things we do that help us live life with a greater sense of purpose. And the first is our works. We work diligently. Now, I thought instead of me making up signs, that we might actually learn what the American Sign Language sign is for this word, work. So we're going to have Heather now show us how you make the sign for work, and this will hopefully help you remember. So everybody do that. One hand like this, and work is like this. A wise person will... Work diligently. Thank you. There's four characteristics of our work. We work honestly. Chapter 10, verse 8. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. They're trying to cheat people and make shortcuts, and they get into trouble. No, we work honestly. Secondly, we work boldly. Verse 9. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. Yes, work might be dangerous. You might burn your hand on the stove, or a mower might kick up rocks, but... We're bold in our work. We take risks, even if there are challenges. Number three, we work smart or smartly, for those of you who are grammarians among us. Verses 10 and 11. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. Work smarter, not necessarily harder. Be prepared for what you're doing in life. Be be educated and equipped so that you can be the most effective person in your field of work as possible. And finally, work hard. Verse 18 of chapter 10, through sloth, the roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. Don't just sit on your couch all day watching TV. If there's stuff that needs to be done, go and do it. Just do the work. Work hard. And his point is simply this, that we have a few short days of this life under the sun, so let's work hard at all that God has given us to do. Now, wasn't that a fast point? That's the first one done. The second point is wisdom talks thoughtfully. And so we're going to have Heather show us what the word is for talk. Can you do this? Wisdom talks thoughtfully. 
First, it talks in a winsome way. Verse 12, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Learn how to talk in a way that draws people to you and doesn't repel them from you. Thoughtful talk is wholesome, verse 13. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. Don't talk about things that lead to disruption and disunity and and fighting. Wholesome talk. Concise talk, verse 14. A fool multiplies words, and I hate to think what you're thinking of me as a preacher who couldn't get his last point in last Sunday. But the point is that the more we speak, the more likely we're going to move into sin. And so we need to be careful what we say and not talk too much. And finally, it's careful speech. Look at verse 20. Even in your thoughts, this is chapter 10, even in your thoughts do not curse the king nor in your bedroom curse the rich for a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter. Once you've spoken, you cannot reel the words back in. And how appropriate a warning this is for us in this day and age of social media. Once you put something out there, it is out there. So he's saying, be careful about your words. So work hard, work diligently, and speak thoughtfully, speak carefully, watch the way you speak. And third and finally, a wise person will invest audaciously. And here's the word for invest. And I love this one because I think, if, I'm, if I understood Heather right, this is a wad of cash. <laughs> and so what you're doing is you're putting, where, where do you put your wad of cash? Isn't that beautiful how language can bring different nuances to light? So thank you, Deaf Community, for, for helping us, for teaching us. Appreciate that. And this is in the first six verses of chapter 11. We are to invest audaciously. Verse 1, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Investing is risky. What does it mean to cast your bread upon the waters? We're not sure. It probably referred to overseas trading, which in that day and age was an extremely risky proposition. You didn't know if the boat was going to sink or if it would ever come back, but he was saying, go ahead and do that. Because after many days, something is going to come back to you. There is the likelihood of a strong return. And when we're willing to take risky investments by giving our money away, Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. Pressed down, running over, it will be poured back into your lap. We don't know how it's going to come back to us, but if we invest audaciously, if we are rich towards God... There will be a return for that. Investing audaciously is generous, verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. Seven was the number of completion. So that was like give to every single thing that you can think of to give to and then add one more. Give generously. Open your hearts. Why? because you don't know what disaster might happen. You may not be able to give tomorrow. You might get wiped out, and so give it today while you can, and give generously. That's why we read the verse in Matthew 6, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't just build this little box, because moth and rust can 
corrupt those things and thieves can break in and steal. But when we invest in the kingdom of God, our money is safe forever. That's a good investment. Good investing is relentless. Verse three, if the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. I have no idea what this verse means. <laughs> it's just a, a cryptic little thing and I read a lot of commentaries on it and it's just really a strange verse. I, I think what it might mean is that when, when the clouds are full of rain and they deliver, that's how we need to be when God blesses us with resources. A, few, uh, a week or so ago, maybe a couple weeks, we had dark clouds and thunder and even lightning and got zero rain out of it. And how did you feel about that? that that's no good. Then a few days later, exactly the same weather, and it poured down an inch or two of rain in an afternoon. And he's saying, that's what clouds need to do. And when we give, we don't worry about whether it falls to the north or to the south. We just give generously and let God figure out how things end up. Fourth, good investing is bold, verse 4. He who observes the wind will not sow, and he who regards the clouds will not reap. Wise investing doesn't wait for the circumstances to be right. This is a guy that's always going out and saying, it's going to rain today, so I'm not going to plant in my field. He's never going to get anything done. We need the Nike motto, just do it. Ignore the risks and plow ahead is what he's saying. There will always be some plausible excuse for delay. But don't let the uncertainties of life hold you back from taking risks by faith for the glory of God. Number five, good investing is trusting. Verse five, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Sure, there's lots we don't know about investing. There's no guarantees. We, we don't know exactly how life comes into a fetus, but it does. And nine months later, a beautiful baby is born. He's saying the same thing. We don't understand how this is all going to work out, but we trust God to do it. Jesus said the same thing in Mark 4. Night and day, the farmer sows, and whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. We invest even though we don't know how it's going to work out. We trust him. And then finally, good investing is diversified, verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So widely, invest generously, invest all over the place, because we don't know how things are going to turn out, so diversify your investments. Don't put limits on how you're going to serve. Morning and evening, be ready to do it. Invest audaciously is what he's saying. And in our culture, in our day and age, we say something quite different from that. We say we need to put boundaries around our lives. And, and there is some wisdom to that, but that is not what Solomon is saying. And I don't really see that in much of the rest of the Bible. I realize you can't do everything. But the problem with putting boundaries around our lives is that we get locked into such tiny boxes that we never invest anything for eternity. You're going to have to figure that out with God. You see, worldly wisdom, Gibson says, builds bunkers and barns to prepare for disaster. Godly wisdom throws open doors and windows and lets it fly. That's the spirit of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. C.T. Studd said a phrase that really changed my life in high school when I first heard it, and I'm sure you've heard it as well. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done 
for Christ will last. My friends, he wants us to invest not in this box of the things we see and touch, but in the box of God's eternal kingdom. So what do we do? What is the application of the sermon today? Our new quarterback in town, Matt Ryan, had this wonderful quote at the Colts training camp just this week. He said to the team, the best things in life come right past being really uncomfortable. The best things in life come right past being really uncomfortable. That's exactly what Solomon is saying here. We need to invest audaciously. We need to become uncomfortable, and the best things then will come. So I want to start with the easier thing first and ask what you were doing with your money. Before 1861, there was no paper money in the United States. It was all coins, and the coins were made of metal that were worth exactly the amount that it said on the coin. That was that that much weight of metal. But in 1861, the Union started printing money, and the Confederacy did the same thing. The Confederate bills were called graybacks, and they printed some $2 billion worth of them. So as we got to the end of 1864, there were two currencies in our country, the greenbacks of the north and the graybacks of the south. And if you were an investor, you were beginning to think, where should I invest my money? By the end of 1864, when the course of the war was becoming clear, a grayback dollar was worth three cents. And by April 1865, when the war was over, it was worth nothing at all. Why was it worth nothing at all? Because the guarantor was out of business. They weren't even around. And the world is selling us graybacks. It it, it has power for a moment, but when the guarantor is gone, it is worth nothing at all. And so what we need to do is invest in greenbacks, invest in God's kingdom and lay up treasures in heaven. Last week, I bemoaned the fact that I couldn't see around the corner of the future so I would know who was going to win the Super Bowl. But my friends, this is even better than that. We know who's going to win. Invest in an eternal kingdom because the eternal king guarantees that investment. And then, secondly, what are you doing with your time? This is harder, is it not? We're so busy, aren't we? All of us. But my friends, you have time to do the things that are really important to you. And so my challenge is simply cast your bread upon the waters. Step out. We're looking for more people to help in worship arts. You can talk to the folks in the foyer afterwards. We need 25 more teachers in Next Generation Ministries in, the, in Sundays. And we need 15 more on Wednesday evenings. There are opportunities to go down on a Brookside road tour. Do something outside, something uncomfortable. Stretch your wings and take an audacious risk. And then we have vision trips yet this fall. And I I just want to challenge you as we wrap up. Consider going even this year to India or Lebanon or Dubai. Where we have people going to share the gospel. Or a trip to Cuba in October. And you can do exactly what we saw last Sunday. Cast your bread upon the waters. Just take a risk and do it and then see what return God brings. You see, everything does matter because what we do in this life impacts the next life forever. Well, who was the wisest person who ever lived? Our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice how hard he worked 
often late at night, up early in the morning, because he knew that the night was coming when no one could work. Notice how thoughtful his words were, Luke 4.22. All spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. Notice how clearly he understood the two worlds, the physical world that he himself had made and called good and entered into in his own person, but then who cared so little about that world that he didn't even have a place to lay his head and saying, my kingdom is not of this world, and then finally reflect on how deeply he invested his life, not just his time and his treasures, but his very life, because he knew that unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's what I love about the Christian faith. It's not just God telling us what to do, it's him doing it for us. Jesus has done all of this. That's our savior, the one who inspired Solomon by his spirit to write these true words, but then the one who in his own person and his own words deepened all of that teaching to give us greater understanding of our life in heaven. So are you ready to follow Jesus? In your appreciation of this life, but your laser focus on the next? In your work, in your words, and then in investing your time and your treasure audaciously, like Jesus did? Because my friends, that's how we live faithfully in a frustrating world. Let's pray. Let me just give you a moment to reflect on what risk God would have you take, which isn't a risk at all. It will be seen in the end as one of the wisest investments you've ever made. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came and invested your life to give us life for eternity. In return, now take ours, all that we have as we just sung. We give it to you, Lord Jesus, to take and use however you would direct us by your spirit for the glory of your name. In your name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.